Good evening. This is To Be Discussed with Cup and Gur, a show that proves that different political opinions do not have to end in feuds and the breakdown of friendships. My name is George Cup, and I'll be joined by my co-host and political opposite, Callum Gurr. Good evening, everybody. That's right, George is a hardline Brexiteer and true blue conservative, whereas I'm a Lib Dem and Ramona. But despite these different standpoints, we're still rather good friends. Tonight, we'll be asking, have the allied Western powers learnt the correct lessons from the Iraq and Afghanistan wars? Who is the most famous British fictional character of all time? And lastly, should Wales be recognised in the UK's flag? With each of these discussions being accompanied by polls which you have the chance to vote on at wizardradio.co.uk forward slash listen. And these discussions will be open until the end of the song break between each topic. But first, last week we asked you to send in your opinions on the following question. What more can be done to protect and extend transgender rights? So let's have a look at what you guys have been sending in. So our first message comes from Bradley and he says, I think it's really important for transgender people to receive the level of protection by the police and the law that they actually need. You see and hear of these attacks in the news and how trans people are treated differently. And in some cases, absolutely abused for living the life they want to live if this was any other community everybody would be talking about it but it gets underreported with trans communities don't get me wrong all communities and all people need to be protected by the police but it's a bit like if a house is on fire the fire brigade pour water on the house that needs the most attention and right now that's obviously trans communities callum your thoughts yeah, no, I, I think Bradley is dead right there in that, um, you, you know, I think transgender people face more discrimination than in kind of an LGBT plus contest. I, I think, you know, LGB people face far less discrimination than what transgender people do. And uh, I mean, it's no competition or anything like that. Of course, we, we ultimately want none of these people to be to be facing discrimination. But it does mean that I think we do have to pay more attention um, to transgender people and ensuring the laws are up to date and, and things like this. Because um, I think at the moment, one of the, the main problems um, really in, in why I think there's a, there's a kind of not enough acceptance of transgender people um, is I, I think it's just a, a lack of kind of awareness around it a lack of people meeting people who are transgender and things like this and i think that those kind of things will improve in the same way that for um lgb people um their the kind of discriminant discrimination they face did reduce when they became more accepted in society, but also it, it meant more people were more comfortable in coming out as it, and it meant that then more people interacted with people who were LGB. And so, so I think in a sense, um, it's going to be the same with transgender people. But I absolutely agree with Bradley in that um, you know transgender people do at the moment I don't think really see to receive the level of protection uh, by the police and the law that really they they need. What do you think, George? Yeah, I, I think you make some really um, good points, Callum, and I, I totally agree with what Bradley is saying. And I think essentially we, um, unfortunately, 
we need to see equality from every from everyone on LGBT people and 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 the trans community especially. Um, and unfortunately, I I do think that when people think of LGBT rights and everything like that, sometimes the trans community can be left behind, and people don't really initially think of the trans community. And I do believe that it's it's not. I don't think people do it on purpose, but I suppose in, in the realm of um, people coming out as gay, um, the trans community is maybe something that is a little newer to come to, to the to the forefront of, of the LGBT community. And I think maybe that's why we are still behind on um, making sure their awareness is just as high as, as anybody else's. And, and, and I'm not trying to defend why um, people don't think about it as much, but I'm just trying to give a reasoning behind it because I, I, I don't think there should be any reason why we are um, not being as involved with, with trans communities and making sure that they are just at the forefront as, as well as everybody else. Um, but I, I do think that we, need to ensure that we are, as you correctly say, Callum, the awareness around trans communities need to be promoted and, and be made um, aware of as much as anything else, because, you know, they they are human at the end of the day and they need their rights respected and they have just as much of a right to have their human rights as anybody else. Yeah, no, I mean, I completely agree with that. And one other thing I'd say as well is that there seems to be... Um, amongst some people, some people who otherwise I think are generally good on, on on kind of social issues, but there seems to be an inability to accept that a, a trans man is a man or a trans woman is a woman. Mm. Um, and, you know, categorically, a trans man is a man, trans woman is a woman. I think sometimes that politicians, celebrities, influence, all these people just need to come out and say, these things and and almost that can be the most kind of powerful uh, way that we can embolden transgender people but moving on to the next opinion it's from Gabby and Gabby says in the UK trans people have rights that are protected by the law for example the Gender Recognition Act 2004 which allows transgender people to change their name and gender and acquire a new birth certificate that stuff is really good and kind of what you would expect from living in a country like the UK. I think the real issue is in other countries. As heterosexual, cisgendered people, we can travel anywhere around the world without fear of being attacked. That's not the same for gay people and definitely not the same for trans people who live in fear around the world. Countries like the UK need to do more to encourage other countries to change their laws so that trans people around the world can have the same freedom that so many other people benefit from. What do you think of that, George? Um, I think Gabby makes a really good point in that we as a country can compliment ourselves on how we do um, stand up for for trans rights and the the gay community and making sure that we are implementing um, new laws to ensure that the equality is there for them. But in saying that, we still aren't doing enough as a country and we still aren't making sure yeah. that we are um, involving everyone and equality is met by everyone as well. But the UK, Gabby is right in saying the UK is one of the leading countries in making sure that all kinds of people are, should feel safe in our country, should feel like they can, they have, um, they can live here without being threatened or anything like that. And I think we, um, as a country, by taking those 
um, steps forward in in laws that we're making, in making sure that people are getting the rights that they deserve, we will see other countries follow suit. Um, I think it can be very hard as a country to put pressure on another country to to do that. But but by all means, I do think we should be doing that. But unfortunately, when we see countries like Russia um, and certain parts of well, China as well, essentially, who are against any rights for um for gay men and women and tra the trans community i, I think it, it's it's very hard for for us to put that pressure on them but in all um what i would say to that is that anybody who is in you know china or russia that that is um part of the trans community or, or gay or part of the lgbt community you know the UK is here for you to come to to ensure that you are safe, to ensure that you have your rights respected. And we can absolutely complement ourselves as a country and help ensure that people like that feel welcome and feel like they can make the UK their home. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I mean, I, I agree with that. And I, and I think, yeah, the, you are right, George, in that um, we can complement the fact that in, in law, um, we, we are probably one of the better countries, but we also have to accept the fact that obviously, yeah, we've not completely got our house in order yet, but um, I, hopefully we're getting there. And one other thing I'd say in terms of uh, what Gabby says, in terms of, you know, trying to um, it, uh, extend transgender rights uh, across the world as such, I, I think that's a really good point. And I think there are ways we can do that. Obviously, we're just going to leave the European Union, but there are other international bodies that we can kind of upload our policy preferences towards and make it so that uh, we have much more uh, stringent um, uh, laws and rights for transgender people, um, mm. say, on, at a United Nations level or, or something like that. So th there are definitely uh, means to do it, although I, I would say just as the... Uh, Live them that I am also I mean the, the European Union is a good place to do that but obviously also we have to accept that there's a lot of European Union countries that are not good enough on transgender rights. Yeah absolutely um, and our final opinion comes in from Jordan and they say I'm a trans woman and I think a big part of it now is everyday acceptance. It's legal and relatively safe to to change your gender, LGBTQ plus people are legally not allowed to be discriminated against and legally trans people have the same rights as everyone else does in Western countries. The government has put lots of laws in place, but the world won't truly change until every generation is open minded and treats LGBTQ plus people equally. The outrage, the outrageous public insults and attacks is one thing that and that needs to be prevented as well. But that stuff will happen less and less if more people check their bias and open their minds to accepting trans people. It's a sad state of affairs, but the small side comments are as important as the big ones. Callum? Yeah, no, I mean, I completely agree with that, Jordan, because, um, I, I mean, I think um, that's kind of what, with what we were talking about in terms of the, the previous comment that we'd had in from Gabby, in terms of getting our house in order, obviously there's there's still a a good number of people, and I think young people as well, unfortunately, um, that aren't particularly sometimes accepting of transgender people. I remember 
having a conversation with a friend of mine who was very good on LGB rights as such and very kind of tolerant to that, even if, although I always think that's the wrong word because you shouldn't have to tolerate because there's nothing wrong as such. But, but even so, they, they weren't particularly open to um, transgender people. And obviously that's something that really um, we've got to tackle. And I think on, on a really micro scale the way that we can do it is just to when someone makes a comment that's transphobic or not exactly um uh friendly to transgender people um we we have to comment on that and and challenge that and and hopefully kind of change their opinion on that because a lot of the time i think it's just where people haven't really properly uh, kind of attempted to empathise or sympathise with these people and, and put yourself in in their shoes, um, and, and or at least they haven't interacted with a person who's transgender community or at least knows a lot about uh, the transgender community and and the kind of process that you have to go through. So so sometimes I think it's just on a micro scale, just really hammering hard the point that trans women are women and trans men are men. What yeah. do you think, George? No, I, I totally agree with everything you, you, uh, you're saying, Callum, and, and um, I agree with what Jordan's saying as well. And I, and I do believe that with the world that it is changing at the moment, with how more open minded I think the generations are coming up, I do think that we hopefully will um, welcome a world and a country where we can allow anybody to be whoever they want to be um, and we will happily accept it and support them through it um, as individuals and as a government and a country in a world. Um, right. Okay. So remember, we will be announcing what the question will be for you to send in your opinions on at the end of tonight's show. So make sure you're ready for that, for the chance to be featured in this segment of next week's show. Um, it is now time for our first song break of this evening. So we'll be back very soon. Hello and welcome back to be discussed. Time to move on to our second discussion of this evening. And we are asking the question, have the allied Western powers learned the correct lessons from the Iraq and Afghanistan wars? So this Thursday marks 100 years since the signing of the Anglo-Afghan Treaty, which officially ended the Third Anglo-Afghan War. The treaty formally recognised Afghanistan's independence agreed that British India would not extend past the Khyber Pass and stopped British subsidies to Afghanistan. Since that time, Afghanistan has struggled to shake off its colonial legacy, being the subject of foreign peacekeeping invasions by the Soviet Union and the United States, with the latter invasion still continuing to this day in the longest war in the United States history. The continued Operation Freedom Sentinel as the war in Afghanistan has been officially known since 2015, started out with the objective of driving the Taliban sorry, uh, from power in 2001, but has since in, um, evolved into a desire to ensure the current, more democratic government remains in power and that Afghanistan does not once again become a breeding ground for Islamic extremism. The decision to invade Afghanistan and the handling of the conflict since then 
has led to criticism of the allied western powers, with many suggesting they have not drawn the correct lessons from the war, and that in Iraq too, especially given the recent actions in Syria. George, would you agree with that assessment, or do you think the allied western powers have learned the correct lessons from Afghanistan and Iraq? Um, I, th- I wish I could sit here and say that um, they had learnt the correct lessons and, and I think that they were making uh, plausible and uh, evidential effort of implementing the lessons that have and they have been learnt. Ju- I, I just believe they are not implementing them onto future wars as it were or future conflicts um i think essentially that some of the main things that we can get out of the afghanistan and the iraq wars for me is that diplomacy is the best weapon when it comes to this kind of thing and unfortunately sometimes when there are there is a foreign um dictatorship a military coup as such is not the best way to go about it because putting military force into an area actually can cause more problems than you initially wanted it to. Um, and I think intelligence as well, they need, they, they have realized that a massive amount of intelligence is incredibly important, not just to understand who is that cause, but who the, background people are of the situation who the people are that have been involved previously and so on and so forth and they can build up a big picture to then be diplomatic and go in and talk to them before they even uh engage in warfare you know and also this is really important to um for them to look at and say actually maybe the best way to go about this is by having foreign allies um International institutions, which will allow the level of communication between countries and between um, the leaders of each countries and to ensure that there is direct negotiations between leaders of countries as well, because I think, unfortunately, it can be very easy for leaders of countries to sit back in their own countries and kind of, in a weird way, dictate what is going on in um, another country that they wish to seek war upon. Um, So essentially for me, I believe that the lessons that should have been learned and I believe have been learned are diplomacy. um, But unfortunately, we aren't seeing that. And and you quite rightly say um, around Syria that that essentially there was hardly any um, diplomatic negotiations that went on there at all. Um, and I mean, you know, around the Iraq war, you could build many different conclusions as to why we were there or to why American there. You know, many people would say that it was actually essentially for the fight of oil and who got the grounds of oil. Um, and I think that's another thing we have to look at is the true reasoning behind why. Um, and it, unfortunately, it is mostly Western powered countries are going after countries like Afghanistan and, and, and Iraq, they might make it out to be something to be more of a uh, easier on a, the journalists and easier on the public when it might be something else. And I, and I do truly believe that if, if we could just get down on the uh, ne- negotiating table and talk about it, I do think that we would see different outcomes in all different kinds of disagreements between countries and between leaders and dictatorships. Um, but what are your thoughts, Callum? Yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a difficult one. Um, I, I I do agree to a certain extent with what you say, because I think 
in Iraq and Afghanistan, there was a very gung-ho approach, um, obviously fueled by the events of 9-11. And in a sense, I think we have to be slightly sympathetic uh, towards that from a, from a U.S. perspective, but also, I suppose, a British perspective as well in, in that uh, I think the public, re- realistically, and it's not really reported on too much now, but the public were baying for blood as well then. And, and mm. so maybe that did lead to what was a, 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 an erroneous um, invasion as such. Um, but I think almost we've now, to an extent, gone the other way in that we've become so reluctant to take military action and um, that quite often when we do eventually, uh, are not necessarily forced to do so, but when, you know, it's, it's really clear that we get, we have to intervene at some point, sometimes it's, it's too late for there to be a good, a good outcome. I think if we, if we look in Syria, um, by the time we really, truly started to, to intervene now, um, the the more moderates in that country or in that civil war who wanted a, a more democratic country, not necessarily along Western lines, but along um, kind of Arab lines and, and, and Middle Eastern lines, um, these people had, had effectively been wiped out and, and had very little power, very little infrastructure to support them. So, so it meant that almost our intervention then wasn't ever going to to lead to a more democratic transition for Syria. Um, whereas maybe if we'd have intervened earlier, um, the, these things might have been different. But of course, we can't be white saviors as such as well. And we, we do have to accept sometimes um, that maybe we do have the best of intentions sometimes, but um, some, sometimes you, you are better off staying out of things and letting a country sort out its, its mm-hmm. own affairs. But... But I think the one thing I would say with regards to Syria as well is, and, and, and all conflicts really, I think when it's a real humanitarian issue, uh, when, you know, we're talking about genocides or the, the extermination of peoples as such, you know, I, I think we are absolutely right then as allied Western powers to intervene then. And, and I think probably the, the thing that I'm really trying to emphasize here is that the Allied Western powers have, have not learned the correct lessons from Iraq and Afghanistan wars because we're now so kind of um, put off of any kind of foreign intervention, really, um, or, or that we then leave it so that these problems actually get worse sometimes by not intervening and we, we let down people's human rights and, and things like this. So. It's a really difficult one, and I do agree with you that quite often diplomacy is the best route. But sometimes, when there is an immediate threat to an entire people, sometimes then it's time for the United Nations or or, or, or NATO to to step in and, and help out these people. I think. Yeah, um, I mean, it's it is something that I I do kind of think about a lot i mean there are uh times when i think that we need to because i mean for example so when um in was it libya or syria where the chemical attacks were i think it was about a year ago yeah two years ago syria has had chemical yeah, weapons it was syria yeah. so um and i was i was potentially really and truly supporting the government in their action to take um that 
military action. And uh, as you've just seen, ladies and gentlemen, I've been arguing for um, diplomacy. But and, and I think Callum essentially points out a very um, key point in that if there is a direct threat to human rights and humanity and we have the, the true evidence for it, yeah. um, then we absolutely should be taking action. I think we are as a peacekeeping country uh, as a, in a way and a peacekeeping um, world in terms of NATO um, I, I think sometimes nowadays as you quite rightly pointed out as well Callum um, we are in, in, a, in a way where we if, if a civil war as such conflict breaks out in the country we more sit back and say oh we'll let them sort it out for a little while and see who comes out on top and yeah. then we'll then go in after that and I think maybe that kind of um we need to be more proactive in in what we're doing in terms of that you know get in there early make sure that we are involved not maybe military wise but just involved in being a peacekeeper between both of the different camps of this certain conflict or civil war to ensure we can get down to a um an equal agreement and and i think that's essentially the thing if we can get into these places early enough to start a discussion to start off with, then I think a lot of these civil wars of struggles of empowerment and um, things like that, I think would never have happened. And I think as much as hindsight is a beautiful thing and we could sit here and say, oh, this was wrong, this was right, this was wrong, um, should have done that better. I, I think that essentially so many lessons could have been learned and should have been learned in the future going forward on trying to make sure that we are um, allowing people of different countries that feel that they are not being represented democratically or that they feel they're being suppressed in in certain different ways. Um, I think it's our right as a country, as our, as allied countries, to make sure that those people that feel they are being suppressed and feel they are being hurt by their own um, government or leader, yeah. sh we should be there to support them. Yeah, well, I think one just final thing I'd say as well is that um, I don't think we should be as half-hearted as what we have been with with even Syria and Libya. I think we were very happy to d do kind of uh, remote um, missile um, mm. uh, attacks uh, on Absolutely. strategic targets, but then we weren't willing to kind of fi finish the job as such by maybe committing boots to the ground or doing a more coordinated military response. But also, we weren't then prepared, and this is the big thing, um, and, and it's what happened in Iraq and Afghanistan. We weren't really committed when we went into it in, in rebuilding that country and ensuring that where we've just gone and bombed, we, we rebuild the, these places and, and ensure that they, they do have a chance then for a transition to to a better society, as it were. So I think there's a really big um, thing of, of after the war as well. Absolutely. Right then, time to go on to our second song break of this evening. But remember to vote on this poll. Have the Allied Western powers learned the correct lessons from the Iraq and Afghanistan wars? You can do that with radio.co.uk forward slash listen. And we'll be back very soon. Hello and welcome back to To Be Discussed. So before the break, we asked, have the Allied Western powers learned the correct lessons 
from the Iraq and Afghanistan wars. And to find out the results of that poll, head over to our Twitter page, that's at WISRadio. Okay then, so let's move over to our third discussion of this evening. And we're asking the question, who is the most famous British fictional character of all time? So when reading a fiction book, or a fictional book even, I for one would always try and imagine myself as the fictional character that was being described on the pages. Whether it was, I don't know, James Bond with me sitting there in a tuxedo, (laughs) drinking a martini, shaken not stirred. Um, Or whether it was Mary Poppins singing A Spoonful of Sugar. Um, (laughs) whatever took my fancy really but we are incredibly lucky that as a country we have so many talented authors which means we are able to relish in the variety of fictional characters that are portrayed to us there are of course a lot of characters to choose from but we want to know from the following options who is the most famous out of these james bond doctor who sherlock holmes Mary Poppins or other and also Callum before I spin that over to you I would just like to say out of those I want you to answer who is the most famous obviously but also who is your favorite out of those (laughs) okay okay um I think it's hmm. see that's uh slightly you know that that was unexpected George we didn't discuss (laughs) it before the show uh no so in terms of the most famous. Personally, I think it's James Bond. Um, just because I think, you know, the, the movies are, are iconic. Obviously, the the, uh, the book series as well is, is fairly iconic as well. Um, and I just think that James Bond, in term, from a, especially from a British perspective, but also abroad, I think he's just got such an association with Britishness as well. I think when when you when you think of Britain in, in many ways you do think of of James Bond. So so for me I think he's the most famous and I think he's probably my favourite character out of those two, to be honest with you. Um possibly Doctor Who, depend and I, I've got to admit I haven't really watched the the season really for the last two incarnations of the Doctor. Um but I used to really like Doctor Who uh, when it was David Tennant and also yeah. Matt Smith as well. I, I liked both of them as Doctor Who. Um, so I, I do very much like Doctor Who too, but I think James Bond, you know, I'd always go and watch the new Bond film, but that's also because it's a far less regular occurrence than what, say, Doctor Who is. Um, in terms of Sherlock Holmes, you know, I think, I mean, there is a massive case to be made there. I think in in many senses... Sherlock Holmes could be the most famous because I think Sherlock Holmes since especially uh, the rise of obviously the BBC series Sherlock but also um, the films with Robert Downey Jr. in them um, you know I, I think the knowledge of Sherlock is is massive now and, and especially in the States um, and obviously Mary Poppins um, has, a, has a Disney film um, which obviously is incredibly famous with Mary Poppins and and almost that has made in the States maybe she's more famous than say Doctor Who where obviously there is BBC America and Doctor Who is known in the States but he's maybe a bit more of a niche um, kind of uh, 
knowledge than what Mary Poppins is. I mean, what do you think, George? Who, who's the most famous British character there, and but also who's your favourite? Well, I, I would unfortunately have to agree with you. The most famous is uh, Bond, James Bond, um, uh, because I, I think, as you say, he's it's a massive franchise that they have going on, and I think he, if you kind of ask anyone in any kind of country what a, a famous person from uh, uh, the United Kingdom or England is they would say James Bond. I think yeah. a lot of people think he actually exists and he's not and, a fictional character. And another thing, sorry, uh, also, actually, um, if you ask someone to quote Bond, I'm pretty much pretty sure everyone could give you like one of three quotes, which you maybe couldn't get from Doctor Who, Sherlock Holmes or Mary Poppins. Yeah, it's very, very true. Um, but yeah, so I think, I think James Bond is definitely the, the most famous British, uh, fictional character. But my favourite has to go to Sherlock Holmes. Um, I, I loved the Sherlock Holmes books and I also absolutely loved, um, the TV programme on the BBC. Um, I wasn't as big a fan of the films. I, they were good, but I just thought, um, the TV show was, was a lot, lot better. Um, and I think, uh, Benedict Cumberbatch did a fantastic Sherlock Holmes. Um, and I, I don't know, for me, I think Sherlock Holmes is a, uh, it, it really demonstrated, I don't know, British intelligence quite well. Um, but, but essentially as well, I, I can't turn, a, turn away from Mary Poppins. She has brought many a joy to, to my childhood with all the different songs that she, uh, that she brought into, to my family and, and, you know, us singing along. And it was, it was very lovely. <laughs> and, and as, and as such, We've had a reboot of the film. There's also been a spin-off film with um, Mr. Banks, which oh, was yeah. about Mary, po- the writer of Mary Poppins, who I can't remember her name. Um, all I can remember is got Emma Thompson in, which did me very nicely. Um, <laughs> and but then Doctor Who again. That is the thing that I suppose as you're you're growing up is the one show that a lot of children will want to watch, want to stay up on Saturday to watch and and hide behind the sofa sometimes when it gets too scary. And when a Dalek comes out and and says exterminate, if that's what they say, Um, I don't know what they say nowadays. That is what they say. I mean, they might have changed it. They might have changed it. They might have done, but I doubt it. Well, you never know. Um, (laughs) So I think. But what I love about all of these, really, I mean, maybe not so much with Doctor Who, but all of them, um, for me, really kind of demonstrate and promote the Britishness of them. You know, they, they a lot of the a lot of the scenes are filmed in London. They're filmed around England and the United Kingdom, and and I love that. And I love that these shows or films that are being shown all around the world are really promoting our own country and i love that kind of britishness of the proper british i mean james bond back in the day used to be a proper proper you know hello i'm i'm james bond and i'm i'm very proper and i'm going to kill you all of that Um, i mean i have been casted for james bond for the next one but i (laughs) that's breaking news by the way everyone so yeah um I'm looking forward to that. Callum's been casted for the next Mary Poppins. <laughs> I'm looking nice. forward to it. I'm, I think I've really got the voice for it. <laughs> God, imagine that. Jeez. But out of, those, out of that list, Callum, yeah. out, could you pick one that we haven't included that you think maybe should have been on the list? So the other, you mean? Yeah, the other. The other. The unknown other. <laughs> <laughs> um. 
see, I, I did do a bit of crowdsourcing in terms of this, and, <laughs> and one one of the um, characters that did come up was well, they said basically any of the uh, any of the characters from the Bronte novels, Bronte novels, I think they said, would be pretty right. famous as famous as well. Um, but I just didn't think there was enough kind of film adaptions and, and things like that, which is because if you notice, all of these have film or TV show adaptions that have been really, really popular. And I think that's driven uh, kind of how well known they are. What about you in terms of another? I mean, it's 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 pretty hard, to be honest. But I mean, <laughs> I'm going to say one, but no one's really going to know who she is. Um, for me, because I absolutely loved... Uh, um the vicar dibley it has to be geraldine granger who was the vicar um yeah. of the vicar dibley and she it was a very much a british homegrown comedy sketch and it was very much um it was never i don't think released anywhere other than um the united kingdom but i absolutely loved it and and uh dawn french played that character and i love her and i love the character Ooh. and I, if it went on here no one would vote for it because no one knows who she is <laughs> Well, if you put the vicar of Dibley, people would, if you put the first name in the character. But it is interesting, actually, because uh, if you Google the most famous British fictional characters of all time, all of these do come up. But also, well, actually, I'm not sure if Mary Poppins does, but um, Geraldine, I don't know what you said her surname was, but vicar of Dibley does come up as one of the most famous characters, actually, which I was very surprised about. Yeah, but but also I think what's essential with these famous characters is that they their character is the title of the films essentially. Yeah, um, I mean maybe not so much James Bond, but definitely Doctor Who, Sherlock Holmes, Mary Poppins. You know, it, they're, they're all the titles. It's not like the Vicar of Dibley. You wouldn't have Geraldine Granger. That's yeah. very catchy. <laughs> no, yeah, no, it's not at all. Right. <laughs> okay. So, um, Callum fictional character Callum Gurr sorry no I'll, I'll stop talking um, so remember uh, Callum who do you think is going to come out on top <laughs> uh, I think James Bond will come out on top what about you yeah no I, I do agree with you um, I need to have a break so let's get voting away so remember to uh, vote who is the most famous British fictional character of all time out of James Bond Doctor Who Sherlock Holmes Mary Poppins or other and you can do that on Wizard Radio to code UK forward slash listen and we'll be back before you even know it. Hello and welcome back. So before that break we asked the question who is the most famous British fictional character of all time and to find out the results of that please go to our twitter page that's at whiz radio right then time to move on to our fourth and final discussion of this evening and we are asking should wales be recognized in the uk's flag so the union flag or union jack as it is more commonly referred to is the official flag of the united kingdom with the current version of the flag coming into existence in 1801 following the Union of Ireland and Great Britain. The flag features the cross of St. Andrew, counterchange with the cross of St. Patrick, over all the cross of St. George. These three flags combined each represent England, Scotland and Ireland, but Wales is notably omitted from the flag. The official reason is because in 10, uh, 1606, rather, 
Uh, when the flag of Great Britain was first designed, Wales was officially seen as part of the Kingdom of England. However, given the continued existence and identification of Wales as a separate nation by the majority of Welsh people, many argue the flag should incorporate Wales as the fourth constituent nation of the United Kingdom. George, where do you stand on this? Should Wales be recognised in the UK's flag? Well, um, I mean, it's a little something about Union Jack. Apparently, Union Jack, you should only say Union Jack if it's on a ship. That is true, but most people know it as a Union Jack, so I said it, George. Well, I'm just giving people some little tips if they've come across in a quiz, you know? This is true, yeah, yeah. Um, but back to Wales. Um, I, I can I can reconcile why why you know the Welsh isn't essentially on the flag Union flag because um, it was it was seen to be part of England as you correctly say and when it was when the Union flag was made they just thought ah it's the same thing we'll just put them under the St George's Cross um, but as time has gone on um, Wales has essentially become its own kind of uh, country in a way it's become its own board it's got its own border in a way um and they are do have a big influence on our country and they have their own language they have everything like that and and i think and they have their own culture as well so i think there should definitely we should definitely try and see whether we can um incorporate them in our flag. I think it would be very weird because obviously we've had this, the Union flag for so long that it would be very strange to actually see what it, what it would be like. Um, but I do think there is some element that we should try and put them on there. Maybe we could just put a little dragon in the bottom right hand corner just so we could say, there you are. That's you. <laughs> um, but <laughs> I don't, I don't know. What are your thoughts, Callum? Well, my parents will be able to vouch for the fact that this was probably the thing that I, that got me first interested in politics, actually, what? Uh, was was trying to get Wales on, on the UK's flag. I, I I used to sit up <laughs> when I was younger. Uh, I used to sit downstairs with my parents on my laptop, and I was designing the new Union flag to oh incorporate God. Wales into it. <laughs> um, bit sad, I know, but um, I think that, that tells you that my the, answer. Um... Is that on the Lib Dem manifesto? <laughs> um, no, it's not, unfortunately. No, no. no. I'll be, I'll be um, submitting a motion to conference, though. <laughs> um, <laughs> but no, I think that tells you my answer. Right? I, I definitely do think Wales should be recognised in the UK. So I guess you say, George, I mean, Wales is the fourth constituent nation of the United Kingdom. And I think it's ridiculous that because um, England thought it had I don't know, got rid of Welshness and the Welsh people that suddenly um, Wales isn't on the Union flag. And, I mean, there is obviously a, a, a difficulty in what could be used to represent um, Wales in, in the Union flag. I mean, because obviously all of these, um, all of the current flags that join up to make the Union Jack, as it were, are obviously crosses. Um, and, and so, in a sense, like the kind of, uh, I, don't, I don't know what the word is, but the, the, the perfectionist in me um, would want it to be a cross as well, um, which luckily, I mean, obviously, we all have a patron saint, every country in the United Kingdom does. And uh, so there is the cross of St. David that does exist. It's um, 
it's a it's a black field and then a yellow cross. So we could have a yellow cross on on the Union Jack um, to to uh, make it you know uh, incorporate Wales. Or as you say, George, we could we could obviously have the dragon uh, if we were so inclined. Um, I mean, out of those two options, George, what what do you reckon you prefer? Without seeing it, would you rather have um, probably instead of the uh, white going round the St George's Cross on on the current flag, you'd probably have the you'd probably just have yellow down there, or would you rather have um, uh, just a dragon in the centre? I suppose. I, I I personally think the yellow will look awful on it. I don't think the colour was really good together. I mean, I can obviously see why you've been so um, such a, a triumph for, for this to happen because you know the Lib Dems is the only colour that's not on the the, the, the Union flag. Oh, so God. obviously that's the reason that you want it to happen. Um, but no, I I personally think the yellow would look wouldn't look too pleasing. I'll send you um, a mock up after the show, George. Yeah, you, please you'll do, mate. How great it looks. Yeah, I'll, I'll throw it straight in the bin. Um, <laughs> and what I think would be nice is each corner to have the dragon. Uh, not in the centre, but have it where the four squares are around the outside. You could have a small dragon in that or something. I I, I think there are different ways that we could do it, but I I would definitely try and make sure that we do not have yellow on the the uh, union flag because I don't think it would look very nice at all. If oh, I'm honest. Well, you'll be proven wrong, George, when I'm I prime minister. Oh, I won't be in the country if that. <laughs> yeah, I would. I'd um. Vic, you know that's not the right word. Uh, uh, who cares? Right. <laughs> yeah, you're right. Who does care? <laughs> Never going to happen. <laughs> uh, right, then, we've reached the time to go on to our fourth summary of this evening. But don't forget to vote on this poll. Should Wales be recognised in the UK's flag? You can do that at voiceofradio.co.uk forward slash listen. And we'll be back in a bit. Hello and welcome back to be discussed. So before the break, we are should Wales be recognised in the UK's flag? And to find out the results to that poll, head over to our Twitter page, that's at Wiz Radio. Right then, unfortunately, we've reached the time to end this evening's show. So thanks very much for listening to To Be Discussed with Cuppinger. We hope you've enjoyed this episode. As mentioned earlier, for the first segment of next week's show, we'd like to hear your thoughts on the question... Have you ever faced discrimination? You can do that by sending us an email to station at wizardradio.co.uk or through Twitter. That's at wizradio. So that's have you ever faced discrimination? And we're looking forward to hearing your opinions next week. But it is now time for Callum and I to be leaving. So as always, I have been the yellow hating George Lawrence Cup. And I've been the expert in heraldry, Callum Gert. Thanks very much for listening, everyone. We'll be back next week for another episode of To Be Discussed. Goodbye, guys. Ciao for now. Ciao.